Welcome, church, and good morning to you all. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here with you this morning in the house of the Lord and, and to have the opportunity to get to open the Word of God for you. Uh, my name is Pastor Calvin, and I am the Director of Student Ministries here at Anchorage Baptist Temple. Uh, I oversee uh, the youth ministry here on the church side as well as uh, the school and have an amazing team of people who work with me uh, to train the next generation to know God and to love God and, and to serve God. And uh, this morning, I have just a couple of minutes uh, that I get the opportunity, the, the great pleasure to, to open up and explain the word of God to you to equip you. As a pastor and as a teacher, it is my job, my role to equip you, the saints, to do the work of the ministry. And, and my prayer is that through the teaching of the scriptures today, that you would walk away inspired, that you would walk away more equipped, more trained to go about God's will for your life. Before we dive into the lesson for today, I want to do just a quick recap of what Pastor Preston discussed last week, because we're going to really build off of the foundation that he set for us. As he said last week, we, we started a new series on the Trinity, on God and God as Trinity. And, and Pastor Preston had three main points last week that he unpacked for us a little bit. The first point is that God is holy. And, and he spent just a lot of time unpacking the holiness of God and what that means for us. And the second main point that he had last week was that God is triune, that, that as a holy God, as the God that we serve from the scriptures, he is triune in nature, meaning Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, yet one God. And then after kind of setting that foundation, he then spoke a little bit on God the Father and what it means for God to be a father. And one of the ways that we know that, um, that he referenced was when Jesus is amongst his disciples, when he's, when he's with them and walking with them, they, they ask him, Jesus, how should we pray to the father? How should we pray to God? And Jesus' response is very revealing. He says, pray like this, Father in heaven, Father in heaven. And Pastor Preston talked about, you know, what that means for God to be our Father. But the prayer continues and it says, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That word hallowed means to make holy, to consecrate, set apart, or regard as holy. Jesus tells his disciples that the way we ought to pray is Father in heaven, let your name be honored as holy. And today, as we unpack a little bit more about God the Son, my prayer is that what I say and what you hear would honor and regard, revere God as holy. So before we unpack this any further, but before we go any deeper, I want to lead us in prayer to the throne of a holy God. Father in heaven, it is with great humility that we come before you. And I plead with you that today, through the preaching of your word and the, the teaching of your holy scriptures, that your name would be honored as holy that in our understanding of who you are, we would fear and honor you 
in all of your holiness, in all of your goodness. God, in the very best way I know how, I'm going to do my best to explain a little bit of your character, a little bit of your nature, and I know that I am ill-equipped to do so. And so I plead with you that if I know or think anything that is not accurate, that you would erase it from my memory and that you would only speak through me what is true about you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, um, today in this lesson, I want to do three main things. I want to help you have greater understanding, greater faith, and greater surrender. Okay, what do I mean by that? Greater understanding. As, as Christians, as people who've grown up maybe around uh, the Word of God, it's very easy for us to think we know a lot of things, and yet we have very little understanding. Some of us, myself included, for a long time can, can read and memorize and know the Scriptures inside and out, and yet still not have a deep understanding of the mystery that is in them. And so my prayer for you, my plead, what I hope to accomplish is that by the end of today's sermon, you will have a greater understanding, a deeper theological appreciation for God and the scriptures. Point two, I hope that your faith is increased, that because of this greater understanding, that you will have a deeper faith something that moves from just a head knowledge to a heart transformation and that your life will be transformed because of this faith that is inside you, which then, of course, leads me to the point number three. The purpose is that you would have greater surrender, that because of this understanding, because of this faith, your life would be less of you and more of God, that you would give more of your flesh and put it to death to live according to the Spirit. So those three things are the main three things that I'm hoping to accomplish through today's lesson. Greater understanding, greater faith, greater surrender. And because of that, I've broken this sermon down into three main parts. Part one, part two and three. Part one, who is God the Son? Part two, what has God the Son accomplished? And part three, so what's next? What do we do about it? Why is this so important? Okay, so part one, who is God? God the Son. Let's begin. God the Son is fully God, yet unique from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to spend too much time here today because, again, Pastor Preston really explained this in great detail last week. But I just want to highlight a few passages that emphasize the uniqueness of God the Son from God the Father and yet their unity together. John 5.18 says this, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. John 10, 30 through 33 says, I and the father are one. The Jews then picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the father. From which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. John chapter 1, the beginning of John's explanation of the life of Jesus, he begins 
by taking Jesus all the way back to the beginning of time. Unlike the other gospel writers, he doesn't start with a genealogy that traces him back to humanity. He, cha- he starts with a genealogy that takes him back to God, to before time ever began. In verse 14 John of chapter 1, John says this, And the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father. What that passage is referring to is that Jesus is the word of God made known in the flesh. Well, then verse 1 says, The word, Jesus, the son of God, was in the beginning, and the word was with God, separate, and the word was God, together. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were created through him, and without him no thing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is unique. He is unique to the Godhead. He is different from God the Father, different from God the Holy Spirit, and yet one with them in the triune God that we serve. Secondly, who is God the Son? God the Son became fully man. Okay, and this is crucial to who the person of Jesus Christ is. Okay, so we have God the triune Godhead, Yahweh, that created all things by the Son, through the Spirit, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God the Son, being separate from both other entities of God, is one with God. But God the Son then becomes the man we refer to as Jesus. He puts on human form and becomes flesh and blood. And we see this as evidenced in the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says, Therefore, the Lord God himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew quotes that prophecy in Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 about Jesus saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. Matthew is making the claim that that the, the baby Jesus that was born of the Virgin Mary is God with us, fully God, yet fully flesh and bones. Galatians 4, 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Romans 8, 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Hebrews 1, 3, he, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus, fully God, fully man. Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, not so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 4.15, 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Colossians 1.19, for in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, him being Jesus. Colossians 2.9, for in him, Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And, and the verses go on, 1 Timothy 2.5, 1 John 4.2, 2 John 1.7. But I want to draw your attention now to another main passage that, that proves the theological significance of Jesus being fully God and fully man. If we look at Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to start reading in verses 4. And I'll read verse 4 through 11. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God the Son, equal in nature to God in every way, submitted himself obediently to God the Father and became a human. He took on the form of humanity so that he could serve a very specific purpose. And though he took on human form, he never gave up his deity, but in the fullness of being in human form remained in the fullness of, of deity. And we get a glimpse into that deity in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1 through 5, it says this, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, is, is it good that we're here? If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. In this couple of verses, we get a glimpse of the deity of the man, Jesus that though he was a man who was born 
in flesh and bones, he remained God. And when he unmasked, unveiled his glory for a moment, it led his disciples to be on the ground terrified because of his glory. God, the son, fully God, and then became fully man. Now, now why is this significant? Why do I spend so much time emphasizing the son of God becoming fully man? What is, what is the significance? So what? Well, that leads to part two of the sermon. Part two, what has God the son accomplished? In order to know this, we must again look to the scriptures And we must go all the way back to the very beginning. In the very beginning, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created this beautiful cosmic universe that we live in. God created this cosmic universe to be a temple, a home, a place for him to dwell with man where they together would rule creation, sharing authority and dominion in a relationship of love and honor. And yet very, very soon after God creates man, man decides to rebel against God. Man being Adam and Eve, they, the first human representatives, instead of worshiping God and serving God and obeying God, they actually in turn rebel against God. And they decide that they don't want to rule earth under God's authority. They want to rule earth for their own authority. And so God says, all right, if that's what you want, And he gives them over to their own consequences and they're separated from him and and they become sinful and and they become overwhelmed by the devil and, and by wickedness and evil and destruction. And God, in the midst of his punishment to them, gives them a promise. And he says, though, though you're wicked and though the consequences of your sin are great, I promise you that from your descendants will come a man who will do what you never could. From you, from the seed of the woman will come a man who will strike the serpent and eradicate the consequences of humanity's rebellion. And so all throughout scripture, from that verse on, humanity has been looking for who is the man? Who is the seed of the woman that will save the world and save us from the consequences of our sin? And all throughout the story, we're given the picture of these great men who've done great things, and yet all of them failed. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David. As the story goes, you see all of these great figures who seem to be obedient to God, and yet all of them fall short of the promised son of man who would be the savior of the world. And the prophets of the Old Testament, they continue to say to the people, don't worry, a Messiah is coming. Don't worry, a Messiah is coming. And the prophet Daniel actually gives a little bit of specifics as as, as who this Messiah might might be. And he says in, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 through 14, and I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The son of man would come and all the nations of the world would would honor him. That's why when Jesus leaves, his commission to his disciples is go make disciples of all nations so that there might be people amongst every nation who are God-fearing, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. And so we have this image from Daniel, the prophet, that this being, this Messiah would come, the Son of Man. And, and then as we fast forward to the New Testament, the person, Jesus, refers to himself as the Son of Man. And though all the people around him refer to him as the Christ or the Messiah, he actually never uses those terms to describe himself. The term he uses to describe himself is the Son of Man. Matthew 8, 18 through 21 says this, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, referring to himself, has nowhere to lay his head. Mark, 16, Mark 14, 61 through 62 says, But he remained silent, he being Jesus, and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now this is taking place when Jesus is on trial to be executed for claiming to be God. And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's a specific quote from the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, also referring to himself. Luke 5.20-24, 20 and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man, again, referring to himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. Only God had the authority to forgive sins. Therefore, for him to forgive sins, he was claiming to be equal with God. He, being the Son of Man, being the promised Messiah, was also saying that he himself was God. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. John 20, 30 through 21, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus, the, the man Jesus born of a virgin Mary was actually in fact the eternal immortal God, the son of God 
made flesh so that he could become the man that no other man could be. Because every human before him was unable to be as holy and as perfect as God, God became a man to fulfill his own prophecy. God, looking upon our human nature, knew that all of us were imperfect. All of us were too weak. No human could ever be good enough to be equal with God, to to get us back to God. And so God became a human so that we didn't have to. God took on human flesh, veiled his glory, masked his glory, and became a human so that he could take our place. John 4, 25 through 42 tells the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And it begins uh, with the woman saying, I know that there is a Messiah coming to save the world. And Jesus responds to her and says, I am he, I who speaks to you am the Messiah. And she goes back to her town and she tells all the people of all the things that Jesus told her and, and they come to meet Jesus. And at the end of the story, the people of the town say to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the promised savior of the world. You see, when we look back at the story, when Adam and Eve sinned and every human after them continued in sin, humanity deserved the wrath of God. Humanity deserved eternal separation from God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All people everywhere, without fail, every single one of us, deserves to be separated from God. And yet God in his goodness, in his righteousness, wanted to be reunited with us. He wanted to be reconciled, redeemed to us. He didn't want to be separated. He wanted to be together in fellowship with us. Yet the problem is God is a just God. And so when we mess up, we must face consequences. We must face the punishment of our sins. And the only way that God, knowing how sinful we are, could be in a relationship with us is if somebody took our place and took upon themselves the wrath of God so that we did not have to. And so God became a man so that he could take the wrath of God upon all humanity so that humanity did not have to. You, me, and everybody in this world has the opportunity to be reconciled to a relationship with God because Jesus took God's wrath for us. Jesus, the man, fully God, fully man, took God's wrath in our place so that we did not have to experience the wrath of God. It's beautiful. It's the gospel. It's why God then says we can receive 
reconciliation and redemption merely by putting our faith in Jesus. We then are justified. We then are made right. We then have our sins forgiven. We then have a relationship with God when we put our faith in the fact that Jesus took our punishment for us. It's a gift, a free gift, something we did not earn, something we don't deserve, and yet he did it for us anyway. Romans 1 verse 17 in chapter 3 tell us that Jesus, the person Jesus, is the the righteousness of God revealed to us. Romans tells us that we know God is righteous because in the midst of our sin, he died for us anyway, providing a way for reconciliation that we never could have provided ourselves. We know that we serve a holy God. Yes, we know we serve an eternal God. Yes, we know we serve an immortal God, an omnipotent, omniscient God. Yes, but we also serve a righteous God, a God who does justly. And we know that because he was willing to give his own son to do something we could never do ourselves. That is incredible. That is beautiful. That is the gospel. So part one, we learned who God the Son is. He is fully God, yet distinct from Father and distinct from the Holy Spirit. He is and became then fully man in the person of Jesus. And then part two, we learned, you know, what did God the Son then do and accomplish for us by becoming Jesus? He accomplished the forgiveness of our sins and satisfying the wrath of God so that we didn't have to, which leads then to part three. Part three, so what? What do we do now? The purpose of this part is that you might have greater surrender. What do you do now? What's next? How do you respond to this mind-blowing information? Well, Romans 12 verses one through two tell us exactly what we should do. Paul is saying to the church in Rome, I appeal to you, therefore, my brothers, I I beg you by the mercies of God to present, to give, to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The way to respond, the way to then go on living your life based on the information of what God did for you is to surrender your life and submit it to God as your form of worship. The only way to to act is to worship the God who saved you and me. And the way we do that best, the way we worship God best is to give our lives for him. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 through 27 says this, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus tells us exactly how we should respond to the knowledge of what he did for us. We ought to give our lives in worship to him. And lastly, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. There's that word again. He is the one who satisfied God's wrath for our sin. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know God, I, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him truly is the love of God perfected. In verse 6, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says that he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Church, how we should respond what greater surrender looks like is living your life the way Jesus lived. Can you ask yourself this question? Can you say, like Paul said, for me to live is Christ? Because that is how we as the people of God, the light of the world, the salt of the earth ought to live. We ought to be a people who look like Jesus, who look like many Christs. People who are not conformed to the world around us, but yet transformed because we know truth. That is how we respond. That is what we do next. Now, church, as we close, I hope that through the teaching of the word today, you had a greater understanding of who God the Son is and what he did for us. I hope that your faith has, has increased, that your knowledge, your understanding has increased, and that now your life would reflect even greater surrender. As we move into a time of prayer, as we move into a time of transition, my hope is that if you haven't today, that you would give your life to Jesus, that you would surrender all, in service and in worship to who he is and what he's done for you.